Get ready for this long-awaited IVF episode. In this solo episode, I break down my top five considerations for optimizing IVF naturally for anyone going through the IVF process or considering it in the future. We discuss the four unique phases where support is needed that I identified along my journey through IVF for our primarily male factor infertility struggles. I discuss how IVF differs from an unassisted conception, what the industry is missing, and how we can fill in the gaps with natural medicine. If you are struggling to conceive or you have a friend or family member thinking about doing IVF, you do not want to miss this one. Welcome to Healthy as a Mother, the podcast for becoming and being a mother with your co-hosts, Dr. Leah Gordon and Dr. Morgan McDermott, two naturopathic doctors who get it. Each week, we teach you how to be the healthiest mother you can be from fertility and preconception to pregnancy and birth prep through postpartum and throughout motherhood, empowering you with the natural health guidance and education you're not getting elsewhere so you can confidently navigate the broken system at large. The real, the raw, the untalked about. And remember, this information is not intended to diagnose, treat, or manage any disease. Always consult with your doctor before making any changes. Okay, let's hop right into this topic. I am so excited. When we talk about IVF, that stands for in vitro fertilization. And for anybody who is unfamiliar, this is essentially the process of retrieving eggs from a female and fertilizing them with sperm outside of the body and growing them to the level of blastocyst or embryo and transferring them back into the woman's body, either fresh or frozen. And this is a tool that is used in the fertility space for people who need it. In my opinion, it is overused and maybe recommended when it's not necessarily needed. However, the fertility system is so broken in the world in general that such little uh, attention is given on helping couples actually become healthy and, and fertile without IVF. However, sometimes it's absolutely needed. And it was in the case of my husband and I, who tried to conceive for six years, tried every single thing possible to figure out why he had no sperm and realized at the end of the day, there were multiple factors, but one of which was a genetic turned anatomical issue that I don't think would ever make it possible for us to conceive naturally. So we had to do IVF actually with testicular retrieval, which is even more invasive form of IVF. Um, And in physical blockages or in other situations like that, IVF is a godsend because we would not be able to have our children without it. With that being said, there being a naturopathic doctor who has gone through the IVF journey and has been in that world, I have identified many areas for improvement (laughs) or areas that are broken in my opinion that could be better. And I identified many areas where naturopathic and functional medicine could be used to really improve not only the health of the woman and the man going through IVF, but also improve the embryo qualities to improve transfer rates 
and pregnancy outcomes, as well as the health of the future babies that we are trying to bring into the world through IVF, um, through epigenetics and all the different changes that occur with a healthy body, a healthy woman and a healthy man, and the, the eggs and sperm that they create really can dictate uh, the future health of their children. So there are a lot of places to optimize along the IVF journey. And in this podcast, I'm going to talk about five things to consider, five different paradigm shifts or ideas to kind of jog your your wheels and get them turning to understand where natural support could be utilized along the IVF process. And I actually have a bunch of resources and an entire fertility formula specific for optimizing IVF naturally at womanhoodwellness.com, which I will talk about later, where you can get even more detailed support on protocols and all of that. But first, let's dive into the top five considerations. So the first thing that I want to mention is that I have identified four unique phases of IVF support where natural medicine, naturopathic medicine, functional medicine, this holistic way of looking at the body can be utilized. The first is when we talk about natural fertility, we talk about the preconception period. We have a podcast episode all about preconception, what it is and and what to do in that season. When the term preconception is used, in the natural conception space or unassisted conception space, there's just one period of preconception. It's the time before you conceive because in an unassisted pregnancy, you conceive and immediately are pregnant and you just go into the process of of pregnancy and growing a baby. And so you have one season of preconception, which is the three to six months before that conception occurs when we want to optimize egg and sperm quality. We want to optimize the woman's body, the microbiome. We want to reduce stress, really work on diet and all the different things that play into having a healthy body, having healthy eggs, and having a subsequent healthy pregnancy. In IVF, there are a few different phases. There are two distinct preconception phases a healing phase, and an adjunctive support during pregnancy phase. So the four phases of IVF support are preconception phase one. This is before egg retrieval, before you make embryos. So in the process of IVF, what is happening is that a woman naturally has a group of follicles in her ovaries Every single month for her entire life in her reproductive years, a group of them begin the maturation process each month. And as that group starts to grow, there is one that becomes more dominant. It's basically chosen what specifics choose that one. We aren't exactly sure, but the theory is that it's you know, a natural selection process that maybe picks the best quality one or the one that's more likely to survive or who knows, it could be random, but one becomes dominant. And in the two weeks before ovulation, while those follicles are maturing, one starts to become dominant and it starts to take in the majority of the nutrients 
and the hormone stimulation from the body. And it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And that becomes the dominant follicle that houses the egg that you eventually ovulate. So in a natural cycle of a woman, she will ovulate one egg, unless there's two, and that's fraternal twins, but typically one egg that once it becomes ovulated, if it comes in contact with sperm, can result in conception. Uh, subsequently, a blastocyst is formed, and then that embryo implants in the woman's uterus, all really without a woman knowing that it's happening, right? This is all being done by the body itself. So that group of follicles that mature, where only one starts to become dominant, in IVF, we give different hormones and medications to turn that whole group into potential viable eggs. And it's no longer just one egg that becomes viable or able to turn into a baby, we try to turn that whole group into eggs that could become babies. And I'm going to speak to this more in our second consideration, but that process of the time before you do egg retrieval, before you take the medications to turn that whole group of follicles into viable eggs is preconception phase one in IVF. So once they turn all of the eggs into more viable, or all of the follicles into more viable eggs, then medication is given to basically stop your body from ovulating naturally and triggers maturation in the final stages of its life so that all of these follicles will mature fully into eggs. So there's different hormones and medications that they use to do that. And then a woman goes in for what's called an egg retrieval. And it's a procedure where most women are given sedation medication so that they are not awake for the procedure. I opted to not have sedation medication, so I know very well what goes on during that process. And they basically insert a long needle up through the vaginal canal, through the vaginal wall and into the ovary. And they like suck out the eggs. Essentially, they retrieve the eggs out of the ovary. And once they have the eggs, then they get the sperm. In a typical IVF situation, they are taking a man's ejaculate. So he goes into a room, ejaculates into a cup, they get the sperm, and they either put the sperm in the Petri dish with an egg and see if that sperm will find the egg naturally and fertilize it that way. Or they might do something called ICSI which is intracytoplasmic sperm injection. And that's when they actually inject a sperm in an egg, essentially with like tweezers. I mean, that's not exactly what happens, but it's like taking a pair of tweezers, grabbing a sperm and and inserting it into the egg. They do that typically if the sperm have issues with swimming or quality issues or any other severe male factor problem. So either by putting them in a petri dish together or by doing ICSI, the eggs are fertilized. And then they grow for a few days to what is called the blastocyst stage. Most clinics grow to day five or six blastocyst stage. Some clinics will transfer on day three when it's like a cleavage stage. 
But regardless, they grow, the cells divide rapidly. And once they are five or six days old, then they can either be transferred back into the woman in a fresh transfer or frozen, cryopreserved, to be transferred at a later time in a frozen embryo transfer. So that is the process of IVF. Preconception phase one is the time before that egg retrieval, before that procedure where they, you know, suck out the eggs essentially. Then after a woman goes through the egg retrieval process, she will have injected herself with hormones or medication for about two weeks before that procedure. These are the medications that stimulate the follicles to grow, that stimulate that whole group to mature, and that trigger the final maturation process. She's often given antibiotics for the procedure. Like I said, most women are given sedative medications for the procedure. And so after that whole process, her body's been through a lot. She's had a lot of different pharmaceuticals in her body, a lot of synthetic hormones, antibiotics, sedation medication, sometimes benzos for anxiety. There's just a lot. There's a whole pharmaceutical cocktail that is given to a woman for the stimulation and retrieval phase of IVF. So the second phase of IVF support that I see is a window of opportunity that is not currently capitalized upon in the IVF world is helping a woman to detox and heal after egg retrieval. This is a time when the body should really be calm and supported with different detox practices, microbiome support, stress-reducing support, all of the different things to kind of get the body back in balance after that intense procedure. And like I said, I was awake for mine, so I can tell you it is really intense on the body. So phase one is the preconception phase before egg retrieval. Phase two of support is healing after egg retrieval. Now, if someone does a fresh embryo transfer, this is really tricky because you only have about four or five days after that procedure before you're pregnant again, which is why I don't necessarily always recommend that, which I'll talk about more in detail later. The third phase of support is the preconception window before you do a frozen embryo transfer. So this is the woman has already retrieved her eggs. They already got the sperm from the man. They've fertilized the eggs. They've grown them into blastocysts, and then they freeze them. They cryopreserve the embryos. And now a woman could wait one cycle, three cycles, five years. It doesn't really matter. She can take any amount of time that she wants or needs from that egg retrieval to actually transferring an embryo because it's frozen. And I see this as a perfect and golden opportunity to really take a season a month to three months, maybe even six months, depending on where the woman's at in her life, to optimize her body before doing that embryo transfer. Now, this is not 
the same kind of goal that we had before egg retrieval because we no longer are worried about egg quality or even sperm quality. For the most part, the guy's off the hook for right now. We already did that. We already optimized egg and sperm, hopefully. We already made really healthy embryos. Now we're in a season where we are trying to optimize the woman's body and the vessel, the womb, for receiving that embryo. Now, this is going to be a very different type of focus, and I'm going to talk more in detail about that later in the podcast, but that is phase three. Phase four is some adjunctive support during early pregnancy. Once you do an embryo transfer, you're hopefully pregnant, right? And in IVF, there can be a lot of failed transfers, which is heartbreaking. And this is when the embryo never even takes. It's kind of different than a miscarriage because you're never pregnant, actually. Uh, the embryo is just not receptive or the, the uterus is not receptive to the embryo. So that would be considered a failed transfer. That's very challenging uh, and horribly emotional. And then sometimes the embryo takes. There's a positive pregnancy test. But then a miscarriage happens later, either in a few weeks after that, or even for some people, a few months, which is absolutely heartbreaking. So not every single pregnancy after IVF results in a live baby. However, for women who are in that early phase, who are pregnant, there are ways to support you in early pregnancy with different supplements and different meditations and lifestyle practices to just help you the best that you can, because this is a unique process where your pregnancy is being micromanaged from the very beginning. You're seeing doctors way earlier than your natural conception counterparts, where they don't see a doctor until eight to 12 weeks. You're being kind of managed really early on, which can be helpful, but then also there's some things to pay attention to and some considerations to have from a natural perspective, as well as things to optimize your life uh, and your health. So those are the four unique phases, and I'm going to dive into some more detail on those. But just as a recap, preconception phase one is before egg retrieval, before embryo creation. Phase two is healing post-egg retrieval. Phase three is the preconception phase two, which is before embryo transfer. And then phase four is adjunctive support during early pregnancy. Okay, so that's our first consideration, that there are four unique phases to the IVF support. Our second consideration is IVF really requires supercharged eggs because we are maturing more than just one each stimulation round. And if you are familiar with IVF, you probably know what I'm talking about by like the back of your hand. And if you're not, or you're kind of new or just kind of going down this pathway, like I mentioned, in a natural cycle, a woman will mature a group of eggs or a group of follicles. Follicles basically house the eggs. The eggs are inside the follicle and they kind of mature together. So that group is starting to mature, but then just one becomes dominant. It takes all the nutrients and all the hormones from your body's natural production. In IVF, they are giving the woman hormones that attempt to stimulate all or more of the follicles, 
that are in that group. So there are certain hormones and different medications that that mimic FSH, which is a hormone that comes from your brain, that follicle stimulating hormone stimulates the follicles. And they give medications to supercharge that process. In so doing, each of the eggs now needs a lot of nutrients to be optimal. So the analogy that I like to use when I explain this is imagine you have one child and your job is to keep that child well-fed, keep it away from toxins and make sure that it's the most well-nourished and healthy child possible because this child needs to do something very important and you are their caregiver. Okay. Imagine that one child needs an apple every day to be optimal, to really thrive. So you provide your child an apple every day. This is analogous to eating healthy, having proper supplements for your one egg that you ovulate in a natural cycle. Okay. You just need one egg to be optimal. In IVF, this is like saying, hey, instead of having one child that you need to give an apple to every day, you need to give an apple to 12 children. You now have 12 that you need to take care of. And if you don't change anything about your diet, your supplement routine, or your lifestyle, and you still only have one apple, you are now splitting that one apple among 12 children. So now each child, including the original child, gets a 12th of an apple every day instead of one whole apple. So now you have 12 suboptimal children who are hungry. And that is IVF. This is why, this is part of why there's so many poor quality embryos, so many failed transfers, and so many poor outcomes with IVF. Because there is very little to almost no support for women to optimize her diet, her nutrition status, her toxin exposure, her stress, her inflammation, any of the things that impact egg quality. There's very little done to support that before IVF, before egg retrieval. So as you're thinking about all of this, you as a person going through IVF need to be supercharged. You need to eat even more, have even more good quality nutrients, pay attention to toxins even more, reduce your stress even more. And I get it. It is so hard to navigate all of the things. A lot of the patients that I have seen who struggle with fertility have toxin exposure, lack of nutrients and stress. I would say those are the three most common things I see. All three of those really impact your eggs. And without any guidance or knowledge or support, those things are happening in their life. Throw infertility on top of that is incredibly stressful and overwhelming. Going down the path of IVF, explodes that to like another level. The financial stress, the overwhelm and fear of blood draws and procedures and having to inject yourself with medications every day, 
to the fear of what might happen or potential past failed outcomes or things that didn't end up the way that you imagined. It's so much for a woman and a couple going through that it's a very unique situation because on one hand, you're being asked by the body to be super optimal, to give more to these 12 children, to give more to your eggs, to really optimize as much as you can. And on the other hand, you're probably in one of the hardest situations to do that. And so it is this very like tug of war type of situation and finding the balance between it is really key and in in, in the goal, right? With all of this. So when we talk about egg quality, we want to focus on optimizing our nutrients, optimizing our antioxidants. Antioxidants are things that combat oxidative damage in the body. They are found in a lot of the fruits and vegetables, brightly colored fruits like pomegranates and blueberries, and really all of the berries are very high in antioxidants, things like goji berries. And um, there's many vegetables that are really high in antioxidants. Anything brightly colored often has a lot of antioxidants. And focusing on just increasing your, your nutrients in general, getting really good quality animal proteins because they have a high density of nutrients, really high quality fat, just nourishing the body as much as possible. So nourishment and antioxidants are key. Reducing toxins is huge. If you every day wake up and spray yourself with perfume and use hairspray and your scented deodorant and you, you know, go and clean your house with your scented products and wash your clothes and your scented laundry detergent and have water in a plastic water bottle and you're just exposed to toxins all day long. There's a balance that happens in the body of antioxidants to oxidants. You need more antioxidants than oxidants. If you don't have that, if the ratio is higher oxidants and less antioxidants, you get damage to DNA. Damaged DNA leads to poor quality eggs, chromosomal abnormalities, cancer. I mean, this is why toxins are so implicated in cancer because there's changes to the DNA. You can have developmental issues in kiddos. Like there's so many things that happen when there's more oxidants in the body than antioxidants. So the goal is to improve antioxidants and all of the nutrients that you need for egg quality and reduce your oxidative exposure. That starts with toxins. So ditching the toxins, getting rid of them. I have a whole podcast about this. So check out Dr. Morgan and I's podcast on toxins. I also have a, a big part of my fertility formula is ditching the toxins, but you can also just purchase that step separately at my website, womanhoodwellness.com. And I have a lot of free resources on my website about this. So those are probably the two biggest things to focus on in this season. On top of that, I want to talk about consideration number three. So we've talked about the four phases of IVF support. We've talked about how IVF requires supercharged eggs because you are maturing more than just one. You're making 12 babies, or for some people, they'll, they'll retrieve 
30 or more eggs. Imagine one apple split between 30 children. Imagine how suboptimal each of those eggs are. The other thing I want to speak to before I move on to the third category is the goal, in my opinion, with IVF is not to just get as many eggs as possible. Some IVF doctors do have this approach. I think it's a wrong approach because of exactly what I'm talking about. When you try to take one apple and divide it among 25 or 30 different eggs, they are all going to be suboptimal. If those eggs are developing in a toxic body or a stressed out body, and there's just very little support being done for that woman, there's even less chance of those eggs being high quality. And in IVF, there is a natural attrition rate. That means that there is a decline in numbers that happen from the moment you retrieve eggs along every step of the process. When you retrieve eggs, a certain amount of them won't be viable. They won't survive. Some will be fertilized. A certain amount of the ones that are fertilized won't grow to blastocysts. Some of the embryos that are checked at that time will not be healthy. They won't have chromosomal normality. And so the number just goes down and down and down and down along every stage. So even if a woman retrieves, let's say, 20 eggs, she could still maybe only end up with one to three healthy embryos. And then with the rates of failed transfers or pregnancy issues, you can see how women might have to go through so many rounds of IVF to grow her family. My goal is to retrieve less eggs around 12 to 15, I would say, would be my max of what I think would be a healthy amount and focus on making those as healthy as possible so that you're not splitting your resources among so many. For women who have a low egg count to begin with, if if you have a low AMH, if you have a really high FSH, If you have a low antral follicle count, which is basically an ultrasound that that counts your follicles at the beginning of your cycle, if you have signs of a low count, then, you know, taking the appropriate dosages of medications to get as many eggs as possible might be appropriate for you because even at a full medication protocol, you might only get eight to 10 if you're lucky. Some women, though, don't have an issue with egg count. Some women go through IVF because of endometriosis or PCOS or a blocked fallopian tube or a previous cancer or whatever the reason or male factor infertility, like my situation, where there wasn't anything really wrong with me, but we had to do IVF in order for us to have a biological child together. In those situations, it might be worth pursuing what's called mini IVF. I did mini IVF, which is a minimal stimulation IVF. The dosage of medication is less, so you don't get as many eggs. Someone like me who has more of a polycystic pattern, I would not be diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS, but I have many follicles in my ovaries. They're polycystic. 
if I did a normal dose of IVF medication, I probably would have retrieved 35 plus eggs. Not only would that have potentially triggered me into hyperstimulation, which is a syndrome where you're basically maturing so many follicles and so many eggs that it causes a bunch of complications in your body and swelling. And some women even have to be hospitalized to get that under control. Worst case, you know, some women don't make it. That's like worst case and very rare, but it can be very serious. So I could have had a, had a hyperstimulation response, but even outside of that, I could have created 35 unhealthy eggs because I was splitting my resources among so many. Instead, I did mini IVF with my polycystic pattern, my high AMH. I had an AMH around eight. I did a lower potency protocol. And so I, I think they retrieved about 15 eggs. Um, 12 of them were viable. And so that is a much better situation going into it all. Some doctors will even do much lower stimulation to create only four or five eggs. That, that kind of protocol just depends on you and your unique situation of, of what, how many times you want to go through a, a retrieval and how many children you're wanting to create through IVF. Um, I was hoping to do it one time and get my whole family <laughs> through that process. So that's why I did the dosage to get around you know 12 to 15 eggs. But that's a thing to consider because if you're not thinking about these things or asking these questions of your IVF doctor, you might just get put into a protocol. You might end up with 30 plus eggs and they might not be as high quality as you would have hoped. You might have poor quality embryos, failed transfers, and I do not want that for you. So if you are a person who is going to tend to have more eggs, you might want to do a lower potency protocol so that you can give your resources to a smaller number and ultimately end up with less but higher quality embryos in the long run. Okay, so that's all about eggs. So we've talked about the first two considerations. The third consideration is that IVF requires optimal sperm. This applies whether your issue with getting pregnant is female factor or male factor. I see the males being neglected in the fertility conversation, no matter where they are along the journey. If it's in the preconception phase, if it's in natural conception, if it's in IVF, men are neglected no matter where they are. I am the female partner of a male factor infertility patient. And even we experienced straight up neglect in the sperm support department along the IVF journey. There is some misunderstanding. I don't know where it comes from. I would love to just understand why they think like this. But a lot of people in the IVF space don't understand the value in optimizing sperm quality. If a person cannot get pregnant because the sperm can't swim, there's something going on with the DNA of that sperm. There's something going on with the health of that sperm. Maybe they don't have enough nutrients to be healthy. Maybe their mitochondria is impacted. 
Maybe there's toxin exposure that's affecting the DNA. If the sperm can't swim and can't result in a natural conception, in IVF, they will say, oh, it doesn't matter. We'll just do ICSI. ICSI, like I mentioned previously, is where they basically take tweezers and stick the egg in the sperm. That's great because you can get around the fact that your sperm's not swimming and fertilize an egg. What's not great is that a sperm that can't swim just fertilized an egg. And in my opinion, that's sort of a problem because if the sperm is so unhealthy that it can't swim on its own, it has other problems. And that might result in a embryo that has chromosomal abnormalities or a miscarriage once they become pregnant or potentially epigenetic issues with the embryo that might result in health issues in the baby in the long run. Now, there is some statistics that show that children born via IVF have more health complications. There's more pregnancy complications and more health complications in the kids. It is of my personal belief that this is potentially due to fertility that is happening with poor quality egg and sperm because the body is potentially in a place where it's not healthy enough to get pregnant naturally on its own. And we kind of force that hand and that can result in maybe some more issues. Now, I'm not saying that this means we shouldn't do IVF if you have low motility. That's what you call it on a sperm analysis, sperm issues or low motility. I'm just saying it is my personally personal approach and belief that we should do everything that we possibly can to optimize the sperm before making embryos. Even if your motility is, you know, less than 1% and you make some lifestyle and dietary changes to get that to 2%, that's still improving. You've still done things to improve the DNA of the sperm. Now they do have ways to spin sperm down and with ICSI potentially choose higher quality sperm in your sample, which is excellent. So let's say you have a petri dish of 10 sperm and only 2% are swimming. That means two of the 10 sperm are swimming. Then they can pick the swimming sperm to do ICSI and you're going to have a much higher quality embryo than if all 10 of your sperm can't swim. Then they have to just pick an unswimming sperm. So it doesn't mean you have to get your sperm to perfect. It just means you need to get it to better. And it is of utmost importance that we support our male partners in optimizing their sperm for at least 75 days, I would say, two to three months before egg retrieval and embryo creation. It takes about 72 days for the sperm to be from immature to ejaculated. So any lifestyle dietary supplement change that you make within that window is not going to result in the sperm that's in the ejaculate. If you want the sperm for your IVF baby to be healthy, those changes need to have been implemented at least 72 days prior. This can be hard for people to hear 
who have already been trying for over a year or longer, sometimes many years to have a child and they're finally ready to do IVF. And then here I am saying, wait three more months. That can be really hard to hear. And those three months taking the time to really optimize your eggs and your sperm might make or break your ability to have healthy embryos and the family that you imagine. And maybe doing IVF only once instead of two or three or four times. So (laughs) I went to many of the male urologists in San Diego and I asked a few of them specifically, is there anything that men can do to optimize their sperm if we're going through IVF? And almost all of them looked at me and said, no, there's not. And they didn't know who I was or what I knew. And I just wanted to shake them because clearly they're not reading their own research and their own literature and their own field, because that is absolutely not true. There is so much that we can do to optimize sperm. And so it's such a disservice that these doctors are doing, not supporting their patients with this part of the puzzle. So that's consideration number three, that sperm matter, whether it's female factor and sperm weren't a major part of the conversation or severe male factor doing ICSI, severe male factor like my husband's where we had to do testicular retrieval, which means that we were optimizing his sperm with the assumption that hopefully there were some in his testicles because there weren't any in his ejaculate, at least that were alive. So everything we did was on a cellular level hoping to impact the immature sperm that they retrieved surgically from his body that is now my brilliant daughter, who is way beyond intelligent and brilliant in every single way. And I know the fact that our first embryo transfer worked and that she is as amazing as she is in part because of the optimization that we did of my husband's sperm, even in his severe situation. So I just want to highlight that it's very important. So that's consideration number three. Consideration number four, I kind of alluded to this already, but it is, I highly recommend doing a frozen embryo transfer rather than a fresh embryo transfer. If you can, there's a couple reasons why people do fresh and I'm going to highlight why I recommend frozen. People sometimes do fresh because they have this illusion that they need to be pregnant faster. And you go in for your egg retrieval and five days later you do an embryo transfer. It does work sometimes, but I would say it's not optimal from my perspective, which I'll get to. So if you can wait at least a month, if not two or three before doing a transfer with a frozen embryo, I think that you and your baby will thank you in the long run. Another reason is sometimes insurance doesn't cover cryopreservation of an embryo. And so from a financial perspective, people will choose to do a fresh transfer. If you have the means to save the extra money to, to do the frozen transfer, I would say do it. Sometimes women who retrieve a small amount of eggs, certain doctors find that the fresh transfer works just fine for them. However, the data is clear that women who retrieve greater than 12 eggs do better with a frozen embryo transfer. Now, 
when you retrieve eggs, fertilize them, grow, the uh, embryos are allowed to grow to blastocysts. They are then frozen. This gives your body time to heal, detox, and rebalance after the procedure of egg retrieval. When you're injecting yourself with all the medications, taking all of the crazy meds for the procedure, going through the actual procedure. Trust me, I was awake during that procedure. That is a very stressful procedure on your reproductive organs. Having a needle poke through your vaginal wall 14 to 30 times and going into your ovaries and sucking out the eggs, I can tell you it is not an easy thing on your body. To go five days later and try to become pregnant after that, after your body's trying to detox fentanyl, sometimes the sedation has fentanyl in it, other sedative medications, the antibiotics, all the hormones and the trigger shots that your body was given, your body is all sorts of confused as to what is going on with your hormones. I would say this is not the ideal time to try to be pregnant. Pregnancy is not mechanical as much as some people like to think of it. And when you're in the IVF space, it can start to feel very mechanical where you just, you know, give women cocktails of drugs, you pull out eggs, you put sperm together, you make these embryos, you put them back in like it's a freezer in a frozen box that just, you know, takes these things like a mechanical robot. We are not mechanical robots. Yes, is IVF amazing and so helpful, and I'm incredibly grateful for it. I I would give my life for this procedure because I wouldn't have my child or any of my children without it. But there needs to be more respect and reverence for the energetics of pregnancy and of the woman, and that we need to be in an optimal place of receiving both physically and energetically, for a pregnancy to occur and to last and survive and end up in a healthy baby. I personally feel that having the frozen embryo transfer and having that time to heal, rebalance, and then prep before the embryo transfer is a gift and that we should give ourselves that gift. So that moves me into... The fifth consideration, which is this unique time in IVF before a frozen embryo transfer, where we are in preconception phase number two. And this is not the phase where we are focusing on egg and sperm quality. This is the phase where we are focusing on creating that receptivity of the woman to receiving that embryo. There's a physical component such as inflammation. We do not want a body that is highly inflamed. Inflammation is going to create the, basically you have to ask yourself, what environment does this baby want to be in? A baby, a embryo is going to nestle in and say, you know what? It's safe for me to stay here. It's safe for me to burrow into this uterus and grow into a baby. The things that that embryo is going to be physically and energetically sensing are, is this a hostile environment? Is there a bunch of inflammation in this womb? Inflammation can come from toxins, from poor quality diet, from lack of nutrients that are needed to to calm down inflammation, from an imbalanced microbiome 
And a microbiome are the microorganisms that live in and on our body. We have trillions and trillions and trillions, way more bacteria than human cells in our body. And the types of bacteria that are present can either cause and contribute to inflammation or can help health. If you have an imbalanced microbiome in your vagina and uterus, that can cause more inflammation and more hostility, and it will be harder for the embryo to implant and survive. So we want to take this opportunity to rebalance the microbiome. The microbiome can be disrupted because of IVF, because of the antibiotics that are given, because of the vaginal lube that is used in so many of the ultrasounds and procedures, and because of the, the sheer introduction of so many different devices into the vagina, uterus, and ovaries, it can disrupt the microbiome. So we just want to rebalance that and make it as optimal as possible before we do an embryo transfer. So we want to calm down inflammation. We want to balance the microbiome. We want to reduce stress. Now, anyone going through infertility has been told to just reduce your stress and you'll get pregnant. I guarantee anyone listening to this who's been through infertility is right on par with me. They know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, our infertility journey was six years. I can't tell you how many times people told me to just go on vacation. And I couldn't even sit down and explain to them how, first of all, it's not me. The fact that you assume it's me is just so, you know, there's so much wrong with our culture. It's actually my husband's problem. But thank you. Yes. <laughs> I guess we could just go on vacation and my husband's sperm will magically just, you know, work itself through this blockage and the varicoceles and all of the things that he had going on, but that's not going to be the case. However, regardless of whether it is female factor, male factor, or both, the stress of the woman does matter. It does not mean that reducing your stress is going to magically make you pregnant, but if you're going through the process of IVF, you are now getting through a lot of the obstacles that lead to fertility problems, but stress is not something that IVF gets around. So you, like I said, just with the eggs, someone going through IVF has even more responsibility to prioritizing stress reduction than almost anybody else, because it is of utmost importance for you to receive that embryo to be in a stress, you know, reduced body but you're also up against significantly more stress because of IVF. So you have to prioritize it even more. Now, some people will do things like acupuncture or some people will even take, you know, a benzo to help with stress, you know, whatever is going to work for you. I am more of a naturally minded person. So I personally wouldn't have taken a benzo, but if that's going to help you through the process, you know, if that's what you need, I am not a fan of taking a lot of medications <clears throat> that you don't need to take, but there are so many ways to reduce your stress and support yourself. I have a whole fertility formula step on this. Again, that's a part of the, the whole formula or that you can buy separately all about breaking down stress and how to actually reduce it in your life. I'm not just saying go meditate. That's part of it. Sure. There's so much more to stress than that. So prioritizing rebalancing, stress reduction, and working on the energetics of fertility. So working on the nourishment, we've already talked about the reducing inflammation, the microbiome and the stress. The other thing that I like to speak to is the energetics of fertility. 
And I dive much deeper into this in my fertility formula in that step, um, fostering the feminine energy for fertility. But what I want to leave you here with here in this podcast is that IVF is inherently a very masculine process. And if you don't know the difference between masculine and feminine, I highly recommend you learn about that. Like I said, it's, it's too much to explain here. I'll go over on this podcast, but I explain it in my program or you can learn about it in other places, but IVF is very masculine. It's very rigid. It's very structured. It's very unflexible. There's lots of mechanistic actions around it. Conception, fertility, and growing a baby is inherently a very feminine act and process. So you as a woman going through IVF are going to have to find this delicate balance and dance of moving with feminine energy through this rigid structure and process. And a big part of feminine energy is surrendering, being open to flow, creativity, flexibility, and also embodying fertility and really stepping into that vibration of fertility. And again, if this sounds super wooey and you're like, what are you talking about? I break it all down um, in my fertility formula for optimizing IVF. But I find that this is a missing part of almost all fertility, but especially IVF because this process is so chunked and segmented and so um, compartmentalized that I think a lot of women lose that and don't have a lot of support in bringing in that feminine flow that is needed to be receptive to an embryo and to a pregnancy. So to wrap up, the five top considerations for optimizing IVF naturally are there are four unique phases of IVF support, like natural support that you can do. There are the preconception phase before egg retrieval and embryo creation, healing after egg retrieval, preconception phase two before embryo transfer, and then adjunctive support during early pregnancy. Second consideration is IVF requires supercharged eggs because you're maturing more than one in each stem cycle. Number three is IVF requires optimal sperm, no matter which partner or group of partners is involved in the struggle. Number four, I highly recommend doing a frozen embryo transfer rather than fresh so you can give your body time to heal. And number five is there's a unique phase of preconception phase two in IVF where you're really trying to create a more receptive womb and being for this embryo. Now, to get into the details of different protocols and exactly what I recommend supplement-wise and exactly the steps to take within all of these categories is too much to talk about in this podcast because it's in my really comprehensive fertility formula program. So if you're interested, go to womanhoodwellness.com to learn more, but better yet, go to womanhoodwellness.com slash quiz to take my free fertility type quiz, where you will be told your fertility type and given my top three tips for you to do uniquely and you'll be given information on the fertility formula specific for you. And if it, if you are someone going through IVF, then I will connect you with the program for you. If you are not going through IVF, you can still take that quiz because there you are one of the fertility types. Everyone is one of my 12 fertility types. So 
I hope that that was helpful and awe-inspiring and supportive. And come find me at uh, Dr. Leah Gordon on Instagram. Dr. Morgan was not able to join me today, but go follow her at Morgan McDermott on Instagram. Make sure to um, share this episode with a friend. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Healthy as a Mother podcast. In order for others to hear this information, please leave a review with Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and send to a friend who could benefit from this content. We're so excited to share more on becoming and being a mother next time. And please remember that the ideas and views of this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for medical care of any kind, including the diagnosis or treatment of any illness or disease. Consult with your provider before integrating this information into your own care plan. And remember, a healthier future starts now and it starts with you.